everybody, Naraj Chabra with Sidebar Advisors. Hope you are doing well. For those listening for the first time, uh, we are a financial planning firm that specializes in working with attorneys as clients. We try to help attorneys at all aspects of their fi- their lives, uh, help them navigate their unique financial challenges that they uh, encounter as their careers evolve over time. Also try to add professional value by providing uh, free CLEs at law firms and bar associations, as well as host networking events for attorneys. In addition to all of that, we host uh, the Sidebar Advisors podcast, which is what you're listening to right now, where we interview interesting uh, attorneys with uh, interesting career paths, as well as other industry professionals. So today's guest is Jeremy Pook. Jeremy is the founder of Senior Attorney Match, which uh, provides senior attorneys with options for transitions on how to um, you know, grow, sell, and buy practices. Um, also, how to monetize their law practices that they've developed over the course of their careers. So he participates in each senior uh, match matter personally, assisting clients to develop, design, and implement the right succession plan for their practice. So, Jeremy, welcome to the show. Naraj, thanks so much. Really looking forward to it. Same here. Same here. So, one of the things I'm curious about is obviously your uh, your career evolved. You still maintain a practice to a certain degree, um, but how did you get into the field of law to begin with? Thanks so much. So I'm probably one of those lawyers that should have gone um, stage left to business school rather than stage right to, um, to to law school. So I was just entrepreneurial by nature. And um, after finishing law school, worked for a small law firm in the Boston area, focusing on business law, and then um, migrated towards and was attracted to business brokers um, and helping business brokers um, in New England, but primarily in Massachusetts, where I am, um, to paper the purchases and sales of small businesses. And this was in the early 2000s, Naraj. And even then, the uh, business brokers were really laser focused on baby boomers. And as I was helping them to paper their deals, um, I started to observe that they weren't brokering law firm sales. And that entrepreneur inside of me just started thinking to myself, okay, if the business brokers are focusing on boomers and there are thousands and thousands of boomer attorneys and they're not brokering law firm sales, then is there is there space in the marketplace for someone to do that? Is that something that could be a nice fit or the right fit for me career-wise? Um, and that's when I started researching, um, starting Senior Attorney Match in the late, like that 2000s, 2007, 2008, 2009, um, and, then, and then launched it a couple years later. So when you started, I mean, First off, why were they targeting uh, baby boomers? Was it just because they are the ones that typically had the businesses or was there some other reason? Yeah, no, I think it's the uh, the former. It's I think just mm-hmm. recognizing that as the boomers were going to be aging, they have been amassing um, wealth, developing businesses, started starting to think about retirement who's going to be able to take over their businesses. And we'll probably discuss this when it comes to law firm sales as well. Um, and we can just see this societally that the the days of the um, father to son, mother to daughter, father to daughter, that is the family business is mm-hmm. less is, is less and less popular. And certainly the transition from one fa- from one generation to another has changed significantly in America over the last couple of generations. I think the business brokers really saw that as well and envision to say okay if the boomers aren't going to be able to sell to to their children then they're going to be able to have great opportunities to broker the sales of of non-law firms 
Yeah, and I think that I don't remember the exact stats, but I feel like 80% of businesses do not go on to the next generation. And then like maybe 3% survive two generations of transitions. So uh, might be butchering the stats, but it's not probably not too far off. Uh, why weren't they targeting attorneys if there were so many booming attorneys? And, you know, was that a red flag for you? Like, hey, they're doing so many other industries. Maybe I should stay away from this one as well. Right. So I there's an obstinate obstinate side to me because I figured, um, all right, yes, let's explore this. And the obstinance is like, okay, I found out why, Naraj, and then figure like, let's keep going. So here's essentially the reason why. Law firms, similar to other professional services types com type companies, are really based upon the value of the goodwill of mm -hmm. that of, of that professional. So if we think of lawyers um, and, you know, and, and throughout throughout the country, especially in smaller law firms, the clients come to those law firms because of the let's call them the rainmakers in that firm. OK, the founders of those firms and the clients are coming directly to those lawyers. Well, if you're trying to put a price tag around a professional service company like a law firm, and if you take out that uh, that that goodwill of the founder, then the clients may not continue to to come to the to the firm after it is sold. Long-winded way of me saying is that you can't get often, and we'll talk about this more. We really can't get at this point a reliable purchase price for law firms, and whereas. Business brokers are getting typically paid on a percentage of a purchase price. To answer your question, many business brokers um, at, at, you know, stay away from the sales of law firms because there's not that fixed price yet at most law firm sales. And we'll talk about how pricing works. The obstinate side of me was just figured, all right, so, <laughs> right? I mean, even though we don't get a purchase price per se at, a, you know, at the sale of a law firm, these firms are doing seven figures, high six figures a year. There's got to be a way to be able to sell these practices and for a broker to be able to make um, a living and make consideration and get paid consideration um, at, at a close. But I think by and large, Naraj, that's a big factor is that it's just we, we're often just well, not seeing sale prices. Not so much it's profitable, but we're not seeing a sale price. And underneath the sale price too, Naraj, is that banks often are not getting involved because the banks are the banks are concerned, right? You don't sure, when you think about a law firm. Of, yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Law firms don't have that collateral that even like a dental practice may have when a you know when a senior attorney dentist sells, you've got the client list, but you've got a lot of expensive equipment in a dental practice that banks can lend upon and, and, and you know and, and, and put security um you know security interests upon. So there's not much collateral in a law firm, obviously, and uh, I, I think that's most attorneys' perspective. Okay, well, I am the practice. If I'm not around, clients are going to come to see me or anything like that. So has that always been the case that there's just no value in that or because you started about 2008 or so? Um, are you seeing that that's changed or was that or was there always value to it? Great question. So I think. A, there's always value. Like we say to our clients that call us and they're like, I think my practice is not worth anything because without me, what's it worth? And we'll say to our client, we'll say to those lawyers that, okay, if you have clients and you have referral sources, then your law firm has value in what we call law firm sales 1.0, right? And law firm sales 1.0, that value is derived typically via an earnout. So if someone's thinking of selling their law practice, the types of deals that we regularly structure are that selling firm 
is typically joining as an up counsel attorney or even or even a non-equity type partner for another firm and they are transitioning their clients and referral sources over to the firm that they join and that firm that they join is is fee sharing with what we call senior attorney the seller over a negotiated period of time so it's always been value it's just that the value is paid out over time on an earnout basis from a percentage of the revenues tied to clients that are pegged to that all-important book of business for senior attorneys. So attorneys often have that book of business, and what our model and that law firm sales 1.0 provides is a way to monetize it via an, via an earnout. That is the, the percentage of payments paid over a negotiated period of time. So it's not as much of a, a, a sale as much as it is a transition for the, the seller. Yeah, exactly. And in, and in business brokerage terms, there's there are often earnouts. You know, there's, there's very often you can have a deal where there could be some money up front and then an earnout over time. In law firm sales 1.0, when it's so much based upon the personal goodwill of the of the seller, like that. Here is John Smith, terrific estate planner. You know, in um, you know, name the county, New Jersey. You know, has written over a thousand wills over the course of his career. The buyer sees value there, and the buyer will say, "Sure, Attorney Smith, we'll pay you a percentage of the revenues that come in um, from you know from those clients as they continue to retain the firm, or the estates of your deceased clients, let's say, for estate planners continue to retain the the successor firm." So I would suspect a lot of these uh, attorneys that are considering going down this road probably have a similar thought that I do. Okay, I transition my practice. I'm a T&E attorney. Um, I work with the acquiring firm for the next two years, but clients aren't coming to see me every day. They're not coming to see me every year or even every five years. So, you know, what happens after that, let's call it two year period for our purposes, you know, where I'm no longer in the practice, like what value does my brand still have at that point? Sure. And, and, and that's really the magic of like what these what these transitions can be, because like the number one issue that our clients bring to us is that they just can't stand managing the practice, but they built up that book of business. So to use your example of lawyer has um, joined a firm for, for two years during that two year period. What's so important is to introduce as many of the clients and referral sources to the let's call them younger attorneys at the at the firm that they join. Um, our catchphrase in our model is what we call trust transfer. Okay, like going back to the Back to the Future movie, that's what we call the flux capacitor. Okay, of the model to generate the earnout revenues because it's so important for the senior attorney to be introducing those clients during those two years, but often arise like afterwards too. We're saying for anybody that may be watching this, you know, watching the video version of our of our podcast, or you know, we all can imagine because our, our our smartphones are within you know inches of us typically. So when our clients are even in their semi-retirement years, when an email or a text or a voicemail message comes in on their smartphones, use your example in year three from a client, because most of our clients know they're not totally done after year two. They're willing to stay on to continue with the trust transfer. So let's say that client X, you know, leaves a voicemail message for the senior for the senior attorney who's now like you and I are in the Northeast. So let's say it's in February and the senior attorney is now in Boca Raton, Florida. Right. This happens with our clients. Get a voicemail from a longtime client and then they call that person back. and Say, you know, I joined this firm. 
um, two and a half years ago, and I now work with Katie Jones. And um, I'm going to have Katie give you a call. Um, she's going to call you like later today at around two o'clock. Does that does that work for you? Oh, you trust Katie? I trust Katie very well. She's she, she's terrific. She does just as well as I would do. You're in great hands with Katie, right? That trust transfer in Raj, whether it's in year one, year two, year four, we find that it really works. Um, and senior attorneys can go back in that example to like going out out to eat outdoors in the middle of february and attorney jones is now doing doing the work for the client okay. and, and, the, I, and, I to, and the senior attorney is getting paid a percentage sure i want to dive deeper into that trust transfer in terms of the logistics as well as you know how how it works for all parties but before we do you know um let's talk about the the numbers that typically you're seeing you know i know in our industry there's different multiples that we could place on a practice you know uh, transactional business might be one times revenue reoccurring revenue is going to be two to three times revenue uh i know accounting practices have similar types of you know formulas what do you typically see as a formula in the field of law which can be so diverse based on practice area sure. based on relationship with clients like is there a range is it very specific to practice area like what do you typically see Sure. So we just we just completed our 10th year in business. And so what I'm seeing regularly for this law firm sales 1.0, which is that or which is that earnout type payment, is that we strive for our clients by and large to receive a one times of gross revenues. OK, and as you said, it can fluctuate. And I give a few examples of fluctuation and I'll, and I'll also speak in a moment on law firm sales 2.0 which I think is going to get much higher numbers. But in law firm sales 1.0, a very typical deal that we'll structure for our clients is 20% of the revenues that come from the book of business of the selling attorney payable over a five-year period. And then, and then things that get negotiated are, okay, when does the five-year period begin? Because often senior attorneys will work for a little while and they'll make significantly more than the 20%. And we have what we call a trigger, a trigger date. But let's just say by and large, the goal is to get at least 20% payable over five years. In a contingency-based practice like personal injury law, mm -hmm. where the standard is much higher, like a third of a third, okay, then our clients can be getting a third of a third, okay, for five years. So that's more than the um, than the one than the one times um, revenues. Sometimes, Niraj, our clients get less. Okay. And what I find is when clients will get less than the 1x is that often happens. This may sound weird. That oftentimes in, in, in internal sales, right? When senior attorney has a internal successor, the person that had paid his or her proverbial dues is going to take over the practice. And the senior attorney sees that person sometimes as the son or daughter they want to take over the practice. And they'll often in those situations will help negotiate terms that's based upon not so much an earnout, but a fixed dollar amount. Because the because the senior attorney wants to see the successor not have to financially struggle, and not the twenty percent is a financial struggle. It's not it's like growing firms regularly accept paying twenty percent for five years. But I find in those internal sales, it can be closer to like a point six x or a point seven x because the senior attorney wants the successor to succeed and and is happy to get a promissory note and just know they're going to get paid a certain amount payable per month for three years or five years. So it's more of, I, I hate saying it this way, but uh, I can't think of a better way. It's more of an emotional decision versus a business decision in this case, because they want to see 
they they know the seller, the the buyer. They want to make sure that this is somebody who clients are comfortable with, that they've potentially been working with over the last couple of years, not just somebody who's looking to buy a business. Uh, emotional is the exact right word for it, um, because and and I'll caution when 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 I'm retained by the senior attorney, I'll say to them, look, I think you can get more in the marketplace. And but it is that emotional side that um, you know that that really does um, prevail on them to want to make the deal very doable um, in, internally. And if it's okay, I'll just I'll share with you about that law firm sales 2.0 because we're we're here in 2.0 already. And I didn't really think that we were going to be a 2.0 as soon as we are, but because of 2020, right, and how much we pivoted, right, to go back to that 2020 word. Um, digitally, um, what we're seeing in the marketplace as well now is that law firms are branding themselves more and more, right? We'll see firms that will reduce the number of named partners and the names of their firms to one name or two names where it used to be like, you know, <laughs> terrible for the, for the person that answered the phone when they had to like say like five well, names. The person that had to write out the envelopes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, all that stuff, right? But but with branding of firms, um, uh, we're going to see that there will be real value placed on law firms that are developing brands. So, like the probably the largest branded firm in America is in all likelihood Morgan and Morgan, right? And if if Mr. Morgan called me today, I would take the call, okay? And and I'd very quickly explain, and not that he wouldn't know, he'd already know that the Morgan and Morgan trade name is worth hundreds of millions of dollars today. And I think more and more firms are going to be branding. And when they've got um, data analytics from their Google analytics, their SEO type analytics, um, that are showing that clients are coming to the firm not because of the personal goodwill of John Smith, going back to our example, but because of the brand of the of, of the firm, um, then the multiples are going to go up and banks are going to lend on it as well. Lend on sales, that is, as well. So I guess I got a two-part question. The first is, you know, when you see, but as we see more and more virtual practices pop up, um, do the virtual practices go for a higher or lower multiple than, you know, brick and mortar? And second, you know, I would suspect if so much more emphasis being placed on the branding, then it makes it harder to, you know, finance those types of deals because it's such a heavy goodwill valuation. Am I incorrect? Or? So it's interesting. Like uh, the way I look at it is that let's go to your virtual, let's go to your virtual law firm. Okay. And I just hang my hat on the, on the analytics. Okay. If the analytics are showing, and I'll, I'll give you an example of a firm that I recently interacted with, not a client, just met them at a, at a, at a, tra at a trade conference um, uh, recently. And the name of their firm, it's a personal injury law firm. It's called The Advocates. Right. That's the name of the firm. No, no surname there whatsoever. It's the advocates. And they're in multiple states in the western part of the United States. And as they are going to be uh, collecting all kinds of data showing where, how the clients come into the advocates. My strong sense is that a firm like that is going to get a higher multiple because if they lose a great trial attorney and that trial attorney leaves the advocates and goes someplace else. But the perception among the marketplace because of the because of the regular and ongoing results that the advocates is putting up 
and the Google reviews that they have on their website um, and the proof in the pudding that clients are coming there because of the advocate's trade name and its brand value. I actually think that a firm like that is going to get a higher multiple because of the association with the advocates as a leading uh, personal injury law firm as compared to think of all the different personal injury law firms in our given marketplaces that continue to be based upon the last name of a given of, of its of often its founder or founders are you finding that that's going to be the direction more new law firms are going to go down where they're not going to put their name on on the door um and are there rules about that? Because I think at one point, at least in New Jersey, you know, you had to have the name be associated with either the founding partner or, you know, the current right. partner or something along those lines. Right. Is that changing? It, it changed in the year 2020. Yeah. Okay. So New Jersey, New Jersey changed and very significantly. New York changed. OK, they were they were forced into it by a by a lawsuit that was like sweeping across the country, um, claiming um, a, a violation of the First Amendment. When it came to um, using trade names uh, for 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 law for law firm names, and that that's why we're absolutely starting to see across the country um, the rise of a trade name. Now, it can't be misleading, can't be deceptive, mm-hmm. okay? Um, but like when I hear the something like the advocates, I think personally, I think it's brilliant um because of the fact that we're not tying it to you know a particular. Let's go back to Morgan and Morgan. You know, I mean, they're so well branded that, you know, let Mr. Morgan live for however many more years. And he has sons that are, you know, that are in the firm. And, I mean, it has such a great, you know, has such a great name recognition at this point. Um, but if you could be developing a trade name for a law firm that is going to perform well on Google um, and, um, you know, and other, you know, other areas where the, that data analytics can show that people are coming there because of the because of that trade name um yeah i think i think there's going to be a lot more um trade names in law firms and one surname um as the as the name of the firm to brand around this the, that one surname as the as effectively a trade name for, for a firm so I get that for new firms entering in at least the states that we just named, you know, it makes sense to kind of avoid their their name to the best degree possible. And I'm sure that helps with retention and recruiting purposes, too, because, you know, people are not going to want to join a firm that their name's not associated with out the door. So um, but for, how about for a firm that's existing already and it's been around for 10, 20, 30, 40 years uh, and there is a surname on the door, you know, on the shingle, what, should they consider rebranding or? If they're considering a transition, or is that their goodwill? You know, it's really interesting. I think it's I think it's a t- it's a tough question in terms of like what are their lo- what are their long term plans? Okay, um, we have to recognize, and lawyers, it takes a long time for us to catch up. Okay, by and large, but we have to realize that clients today are searching for their lawyers online. So if you have sort of an older school approach of a word of mouth right a word of mouth type of uh, approach to 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 business development that having that long name was okay because people were hearing word of mouth about particular attorneys at the firm all right but more and more are the younger generations of clients that are searching on google we're often saying that america's number one referral source for the legal industry is uncle google and if you maintain 
those five names, you know, as the, you know, as your, you know, as the name of your law firm going forward, it's just a big question from a business development standpoint is how to make sure that you're landing on, on, you know, on the first page of Google. And maybe that's a pay grade above me, but it's almost in some respects go back, goes back to the yellow pages, right? Why, why did so many businesses name themselves with an A, <laughs> right? They want you know, or, or if they're, yeah, right. You want to be at the top, you know, the top of that, you know, of the yellow pages. If you want to be top of Google, you know, are you going to do better um, maintaining your very long name or are you going to reduce to one name or change to a trade name or what a lot of firms should be considering, at least the senior attorney led firms, when you don't have an internal successor, when is the right time to consider merging your firm? Um, from a succession planning standpoint, if you don't have internal successors that would naturally take over the firm. And by the way, Niraj, that raises all other kinds of interesting questions because even when you when you merge and you've got such great goodwill based upon the, the firm's name for so many years, like do you, you know, how do you leverage that name when senior attorneys join or a whole firm joins another firm? Yeah, fair. So so let's let's game out that scenario you have an ex a uh, person that doesn't have an internal succession plan they are you know getting close to retirement age and decide you know what i don't want to practice even in a reduced capacity anymore i've just decided i'm just gonna shut it down um how do they go about finding a seller or you know what's your involvement in helping them with that process sure i think you meant you said how do you go about finding i think you meant to say a buyer i think right is that, I'm that sorry, is right correct, yes. no no it's fine it's fine so how do you go about finding a buyer so uh, what we find is the, the best buyers in the marketplace are what we call like kind buyers. So if you've led a firm, if a senior attorney has led a firm, let's let's say on the transactional side, firm that does, I'll, I'll name three practice areas that, that swim pretty well together, um, real estate, corporate and trust and estates. OK, they've you know, they've just been able to do all kinds of intra firm um, referrals among and between the lawyers. Uh, but as you just said, let's say they don't have an internal successor and several of its founders want to be all done and they want and they want to retire. The best way in, in our experience to find the right buyer for that type of practice is who's doing real estate, corporate and T&E and is being led by the mirror image of the seller from 20 years ago. We find the best buyers have practiced for at least 10 to 15 years, ideally 15-ish. That puts them in the 40 years to 50-year-old range. Those younger attorneys, let's call them, are hungry to grow. What are they always looking for? They want and need clients. And that's why the the right buyer is typically a like-kind buyer, 20-ish to 30-ish years younger than the selling attorneys. And look, they find it, you know, is there anything that either the buyer or seller should know about that's usually a surprise through going through this process if it's the first time? So um, one thing that is a um, is a surprise is um, I don't know if I'll label it so much a surprise is to uh, try to avoid what we call puppy love. Right. Like just thinking okay. back to our teen, right. Thinking back to our teenage selves, you know, like we dated fill in the blank and our brother, our mother, our best friend said to us, this person is just not right for you. Like you may be head over heels. You think that she or he is amazing, but I'm your friend. And like, no, they're not. Cause we find that sometimes in Raj that like on paper, 
a firm may look great, and, but it's important to recognize that maybe you guys have significant culture, firm cultural differences. Um, so that's sort of a surprise. But I would imagine most firms are going to have cultural differences. If you were, let's say, a solo practitioner and you're selling to, let's say, a 10, 20, 30, 40 person law firm, right? It's a great point. It's a, it's a really great point. And I guess when I say the cultural ones, I just want just like, there's just things like I, I can go back to an example of one of one matter that ultimately didn't work because the buyers were just cheap, you know, and maybe okay. that wouldn't bother other people, but they were just cheap on like just being nickel and diming on little little things. And we really should have seen the writing on the wall that those little things um, weren't just like a, hey, I'm merging into a larger firm as much as, hey, we just don't share similar principles. Okay. Now you bring up something else, which is which is fascinating, which we call the the second day effect. Okay, it's like we do all this planning, we write up, we write a, you know, hopefully a great agreement. The second day effect is when the senior attorney says, "Hey, this is the way I've always done it," and the growing firm that the senior attorney and his or her staff, right? That's you, nice, you but... this, right? Exactly. That's nice, but this is how we do it here. Uh -huh. And and that's why we brought in, um, it's not me, but I work with a very talented company that they do integration consulting services because there just are going to be those growing pains. It's like I often analogize the days one through 180, which sounds like a long time, but, you know, it's not all that much time because what I'm about to say is sounds like it, it, it could be a little rough. And, and frankly, it can be a little rough. I call it a tur it's a turbulent um, um, up climb, like in a air, you know, when your pilot tells you it's going to be a little turbulent until you get to cruising altitude, the first 180 days can be turbulent. For, and, and in large part because it's this battle that always comes up between this is the way we've always done it and this is how we do it here. And the parties just need to compromise. And I would suspect that it's the hardest for the seller because they're the ones that it's it's personal to them. It's not personal to anybody else. The clients, they're going to be fine. They're going to look at it and say, oh, look, you know, it's more resources and it's more people that I could call if you're not available. But to the the seller, it's this is their baby and you're ripping it apart. Yeah, so so absolutely. But I can tell you because I've, I've listened, you know, I've had phone calls and Zoom meetings that could be one after the other, you know, and, and to the buyers, you know, it, it can be very frustrating to them, too, because they're like, geez, we really thought that this was just going to be gangbusters on our P&L in the first quarter. And like, wait a second, we didn't realize like the first month of the first quarter after senior attorney joins, like we had to send out all those letters. Like the senior attorney didn't bill that much in the first month. And, you know, as we know, billings are huge, in sure. law, you know, in law firms. And that, that first month, the parties just need to recognize that there may not be all that much billing that happens during the, during the transition slash integration. Are there any other, you know, words of wisdom that you would give either a person who is considering buying or selling, you know, let's say in the next 10 years, should they be even be thinking about this that early on? Yeah, thanks so much for the question. So um, let me answer it from the buyer side first, and then we'll go to okay. the seller side. Okay. So from a buyer, growing a growing law firm. So like clients like yours, Naraj, that, you know, that are growing their wealth. Okay. And, and are thinking, okay, how am I going to grow? How am I going to grow my practice? How am I going to bring in more clients? A super underutilized method to grow your practice base if you're a growing firm is to grow by acquisition. Okay. To, to succeed to the book of business for a senior attorney, you know, really has like four 
primary components to the value that it adds, right? It adds instant client growth. You're often bringing over the lawyers that didn't want to purchase a senior attorney's firm. So you've got, you've got billable people that immediately come over that you don't need to train except for coming onto your systems. You've got a cumulative expertise is number three among the lawyers at the firm, plus even their non-lawyer staff. They've got expertise in different practice areas because they've been doing it. That 10,000 hour rule has often been hit by many of the support staff that senior attorneys bring over with them. And then digital content. Like There's so much need today to be pumping out digital content. And senior attorneys and other lawyers at their firms are just sitting on that digital content totally, un totally underutilized. So it's huge value to just leapfrog um, you know, into either into a practice area, really, like I was saying before, that like kind to really expand and build upon um, your practice by that, particularly the instant client growth. For the senior attorneys, that is attorneys who are practicing more than 30 years, like there's a real live yellow flag out there in the marketplace for them because they built their books of businesses in the pre-Google era, the word of mouth era, the rainmaker era. Okay, when they were out there going to in-person networking events um, and, you know, all kinds of word of mouth, you know, sent, you know, you should you you should go to my friend so and so. Okay, because they're great at such and such practice area. The yellow flag for senior attorneys for those books of business is that we're regularly seeing they're not replenishing their books as much as they did pre Google because they're often not investing in digital marketing. Are and they still going out there and networking or are they just kind of figuring, well, I built my practice. I don't really need to market it at this stage. It's a great point. A, they're not going out there because, you know, been there, done that. Right. It gets right. it's 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 tiring. It's in the, in the, it is in the post covid world. There just are also aren't as many opportunities, although in-person networking has certainly come back. But the big difference, Naraj, OK, is the clients have changed. Right. Whereas the clients in yesteryear, and this still happens, but clients in yesteryear, when they needed a lawyer, they would call their mother, their father, their accountant, their financial planner, um, their ask their coworker, who do you recommend for, you know, for, for this need of mine? I, I, we are, our fan, we just had our first baby and we need a will. Who do you recommend? Well, now that married couple, they're going to go with their Facebook group. Right. They're going to go on this Facebook mom's group of their of their in their in their local town or city and say, hey, all the time. Yep. Right. I'm getting divorced. I need an attorney. Who do you recommend? And then there's 50 comments by the end of the day Bingo. with 50 different names. <laughs> so that yellow flag for senior attorneys is they're they're not capturing that new business. And so like they're we're often saying that for senior attorneys that aren't adopting digital marketing that their practices are worth the most they're going to be worth now in the mid-2020s because they're not going to be replenishing the book of business as much as they did in, 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 in yesteryear. Still valuable, absolutely valuable. But in that law firm sales 1.0, right, which is so much based upon the client list and the referral source list, if the client list is shrinking and the referral sources are starting to retire, then their books of business aren't going to be as valuable uh, further into this decade. Awesome. And I'm sure a question that, you know, people have with regards to considering hiring somebody like yourself to who's forged these relationships with all these different law firms is how do you get paid or how much does it should you expect to to give up in some sort of transaction? Obviously, in an ideal world, so just like a house, you could always, you know, sell yourself and uh, put it out there and, you know, it's it's going to be the most profitable for you. Maybe, maybe not. You know, there's obviously a learning curve, but 
if you don't have those relationships, if you don't feel like going out there and trying to find a seller or a buyer, you know, how, do, how does one uh, work with somebody like yourself? Sure. Thanks so much for the question. So we do two things at Senior Attorney Match. We design succession plans for our clients. So there's a fixed fee component to that. Uh, we start with our what we call our next step workshop. It's a 90 minute consultation um, with, uh, with with potential clients, and we use a virtual whiteboard and and go over you know what it is that makes up their practice, what are their goals, what's their time frame. If they continue with us, we have something called our design phase, and there's a fixed cost to that as well. Then we're totally contingent. And, um, and and our payment is similar to a business broker. And like I was saying earlier in the podcast, where our goal is for our clients to um, to receive a one times of gross revenues, um, mm-hmm. a typical a, a typical consideration for senior attorney match is somewhere based upon that value of that um, a, a, of the last three years of the gross revenues of a firm. We take the average of that, and our fee is somewhere between eight to ten percent of that average of gross revenue. So the value proposition is that if we put you on the pathway to receive consideration for your firm, albeit over time, as a one times of gross revenues, is that worth paying a contingent success fee to us of somewhere between eight to 10%. So the idea is that through using your services, they would have added more than eight to 10% value to their firm, which they should happily pay you for because they, you know, they more than made up for it uh, on the selling price. Yeah, that's the, that's the goal. And people do mm-hmm. do for sale by owner, you know, mm-hmm. and it's 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 doable. But, you know, like with any business, having a including the sale of your house, having an intermediary, we find certainly adds value, saves time um, and gives the gives, you know, gives the seller the opportunity to really strategize um, about you know how to go about the sale process and who to consider to sell to. Are you finding major changes in the landscape of buying and selling of law firms that didn't exist let's say even 10 years ago so um great question again and i'll tell you i'll give you a prediction for one okay and and this is one when i said before that i went stage left to business school versus Mm -hmm. stage right to um um you know to law school is that the entrepreneurial lawyer is still relatively rare and when I was saying before that an underutilized method to grow your business is growth by acquisition, Niraj, I'm still surprised that we call on growing firms and we present to them the opportunity of picking up 500 to 1,000 plus new clients and the potential buying firms just say that they've got too much business already. They, you know, they're just not, they're just not interested because it would be too much. It would just be too much for them versus a, Hey, how can we do this? Like, like, yeah, we're going to need clients here. And, and, and we recognize that this is a great way to grow. So I absolutely foresee that as the marketplace continues to get more and more competitive online, that digital marketing that we've been talking about, that more growing firms are going to say, wait a second, we can be spending tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars per year um, on on Google ads, pay-per-click, um, and, and whatnot, and wait a second, we could take on a senior attorney's book of business, and our case cost acquisition would be such and such. And I think that by more growing firms are going to recognize the case cost acquisition value that growth by acquisition presents, because there aren't enough buyers out there right now. At least that's my it's not even, okay interesting Correct. yeah it's uh, the exact opposite in our industry <laughs> excuse me there's a uh, very few practices for sale and 
not enough people because in our industry very similar to law you know people could continue to do this in their 60s 70s and potentially 80s you know sure. uh, maybe not in the same capacity because of desire not because of anything else so they're hanging on to their practices and there's a, mu- a bunch of people my age that are trying to to buy these practices but just not enough inventory out there so yeah it's so fascinating because yeah the, the situation with lawyers is like what i hear often all, every day with senior attorneys is i can't stand managing it I'd mm-hmm. like to I'd I'd love to be able to monetize like it. I'd, lawyer, I, right. I'd <laughs> really love my internal person to take it over, but she can't do it and, and doesn't have interest in it. Um or he. Um and then and then yeah, finding the buyers can be can be challenging. Really interesting stuff. Well, Jeremy, thank you very much for coming on and sharing your expertise with our audience. I'll be sure to include all of your contact information in case anybody has some uh, some further questions that they wanted to ask you that maybe we didn't cover today. But I appreciate your time today. Great, Nuraj. I really appreciate all the questions and thanks so much for inviting me. Not a problem. Thank you very much.